Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, November 28th, 2021. And this is episode 250. It's also Thanksgiving weekend. We hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving. Absolutely. we're with your favorite people. Mm Mm-hmm. Or had it on your own, and that's your favorite thing. Whatever floats your boat. Hope you had a great weekend. Yes, wonderful to be in a holiday season after another pandemic year. And then the pandemic's going to be over, right, Brendan? That's what we're talking about, right? Right? (laughs) Well, we're talking about lots of other things, but to start us off, well, why don't we find out what shows we covered this week, Naomi, what did you look at? Yeah, so I looked at Fox News Sunday, which was hosted today by Trace Gallagher from the Fox News anchor team people. Chris Wallace was having soup with his wife, I'm sure. <laughs> she has a cookbook about soups with Chris Wallace. And then I looked at this week, which was hosted by George Stephanopoulos. I looked at Face the Nation, hosted by our regular Margaret Brennan. I looked at Meet the Press, hosted by our regular Chuck Todd. And I looked at State of the Union, hosted by Dana Bash. All regulars. So, Naomi, did you have a quality or questionable moment that you wanted to bring to everyone's attention today? So I'm pulling a Brendan and cheating a little bit because it's a little bit of questionable, a little bit of quality. All right. What do you want to start with? Well... At first, I was super annoyed with some of the comments that were that I heard on the panel on this week. The panel on this week is often a waste of time. And so I was getting all sorts of annoyed at Chris Christie, as well as Rain Salam from the Manhattan Institute. And they were just they were just saying not valuable things about the trial in Georgia for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And I I don't know, I just felt like they were focusing on the wrong things and just trying to act like everything is normal in our criminal justice system because these three men were found guilty and our criminal justice system worked perfectly. And of course, George Stephanopoulos had very few probing questions for them. Listen to the first clip from Chris Christie and the second clip from Ryan Salam. Not that we're there, because you're absolutely right about that, Donna, but that we're making progress towards that. And if we had said 30 or 40 years ago that in the Deep South, that kind of verdict would have happened. For would it have Aubrey, happened without the video? Well, you know what, George? That's the evidence in the case, though. You know, in the end, where we are now as a society, that's why body cams are so important with law enforcement. People, we're in a visual society now. Juries are used to watching TV shows where evidence is put out in that way. They want to see things like that themselves. And in cases like this where you have the evidence, the jury did the right thing. And what it means is that race didn't play a role in their determining guilt or innocence. 
Well, I think that what you see is a social media climate where everything gets nationalized, where every story, every incident is decontextualized and placed in the context of what is the most useful political agenda to advance, what is the most compelling from the perspective of building an audience. Whereas when you're looking at the jury system, the whole idea is to contextualize, to make things very specific, to have a deliberative process. And I think that that's a very good and healthy thing that we have this deliberative process. There's a reason we have that process. But there is a conflict here between the appetite of social media and what you actually need to ensure that justice gets done. And my concern is that, you know, with these video images, these are incendiary. And guess what? With a video image, you can take images out of context. You can uh, use them in ways that advance pre-existing but, 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 agendas. But, but how about Donna's point? But for the video in the Ahmaud Arbery case, but for the video in the George Floyd case, justice might not have been served. I absolutely think that we just live in a world where we're saturated with video images, right? But what I think we need to do is always take a beat and have some faith that a deliberative process is going to work. I'm not saying that we don't use video. What I'm saying is that when you see these video images go viral in the moment, as opposed to thinking, what is the context I'm not seeing? What am I missing in this case? So like I said, both of these comments made me feel a little frustrated that like they were just too optimistic on our criminal justice system as well as like focusing on this whole point of like social media has this whole dangerous component for criminal trials when social media kind of propelled the cases for both the, the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. So I was getting a little annoyed and I was like, why do we have this? Blah, blah, blah. In my, you know, in my head, I was getting I was having my fight with George Stephanopoulos. But there was some great counterweight that was booked on the panel and they did all the work that I was hoping for. So take us into these following clips from the first one, Donna Brazil, an ABC News contributor and Democratic strategist. And the last one will be, um, it'll have a little bit of Ryan Salam and as well as Heidi Heitkamp, the former senator from North Dakota. Let me ask you a question. Why is it when we talk about race, we get inflamed? What is it about race that inflames emotions? It is because some people are denied their human rights, their right to exist. Emmett Till had no video. And therefore, when he was murdered, it took his open casket for people to see how this young boy, who we know now was innocent, how he was murdered. So we need to have some way to reconcile the past. But when we talk about race, we should be able to say we're bringing it up because it is a social construct that needs to be pulled apart so that we're not judging people simply because of the way they look. Here's what worries me. When you're looking at the number of murders that do not fit a narrative, right, that get ignored, that where you don't see the resources necessary to actually, for example, solve crimes. When you talk about missing and murdered indigenous, black, you name it, women and children, what's going on here is that we do not clear homicides. We do not clear shootings. The reason for that is, in my view, underinvestment in policing and public safety. That is a real crisis, but that is an invisible crisis but, but because you, it does not fit but, existing narrative. But you narratives. can't ignore the fact if it's a white girl, we'll spend all kinds of resources at the, at the FBI looking for her murderer. But yet, so you say, yes, we're under-resourced. I totally agree. Nothing could be more true on an Indian reservation. But why is it that when the resources are deployed, they all seem to be deployed to white girls who go missing as opposed to Native American girls who go missing or black girls. So I just thought both of these ladies just brought the bigger picture in mind where 
I felt like Salam and Christy wanted to kind of have, I don't know, like paint a picture that was, you know, ignorant of race and the actual effects of policing in certain communities or ineffective policing in certain communities. And I just thought both of these women just brought the right focus on what both of these cases, specifically the Mott Arbery case, who they just found guilty last week, what it means now for this moment. Yeah, it's a very interesting debate here. There's lots of different perspectives and points coming up and counterpoints. So it seems like a very interesting panel. I I was kind of nodding along a little bit to the first clip you played by Mr. Salam from the Manhattan Institute when he was talking about, you know, so many incidents are, quote, decontextualized and placed in the context of what is the most useful political agenda to advance. I do think that that happens a lot to these cases where they are taken out of context. And I do appreciate that the jury system is meant to focus on the actual facts of the case. So that I agreed with. But then it seemed like he was saying, well, so therefore social media has no use here or was not important, an important factor in making this happen. And these videos are just, you know, we're saturated in videos. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I disagree with his like where he takes that. But his main point, I think, is important. Well, I think there's something to be said where like the danger or risk of video and photos online more broadly, but then to focus it on the use of criminal trials that we saw in Minnesota as well as in Georgia, those cases were propelled by social media. Like, we had national protests because of the George Floyd murder. And for the Maude Arbery case, that video was leaked because, like, and and the prosecutor in, in Georgia is now being investigated because she didn't want to arrest those men. Right. Right? So it's just like, This is insane to think that this is like the perfect example of, you know, local law enforcement having the right judgment to do what was necessary and the jury kind of getting it right. And that's why this conversation is is valuable to be having on this national national platform. Right. Because where it should go beyond just, you know, people shooting from the hip their own personal opinions and some of this is good context for sure. You know, the Emmett Till example is extremely powerful, very powerful. But where it should go beyond this and what the show should be asking after this panel discussion is how do we fix it? Right. Right. Like you should build these political systems. And that's what the, the founders tried to do in founding America so that they are resilient and that there are checks and balances and that there's a situation where, yes, you might have a prosecutor or a judge or somebody who doesn't want to do their job the way it should be done, but there's someone checking up on them or there's a backstop, you know, to use a word that Gottlieb loves to use. There's a backstop against that that isn't just the public or social media, right? Right, but is built into the system to double check to make sure people are doing their jobs and aren't abusing their jobs or their positions or choosing to look the other way when it's this group versus that group. That is what must be done. You know, like we have to make sure that our criminal justice system can't continue to be abused in the way that it has been. 
Right. What are the institutional changes we're willing and ready to make at this point? There must be institutional changes. And it's so frustrating to see case after case where, oh, it just barely squeaks by and we get a good verdict. Right. Or sometimes don't get a good verdict and then people are up in arms. But problems are presenting themselves. And this forum of the national Sunday news shows is a perfect place to take these observations and turn them into questions about policy. What must be done about it? Right. Moving beyond kind of like, what's the sentiment of the week? Right. It's like, what are the next steps? Or what are the details of this Mm -hmm. case? It's like, when are you going to have a politician on to ask them, what are you doing to change this? Period. And not just change it in the sense of, you know, the, the issues necessarily as it relates to race, but just as it relates to a system that is fair in general. So much is focused on, you know, criminal justice and policing, but there's clearly so much more there that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. So I thought it was, like I said, a moment where I was frustrated by the panel, but it just shows how important a well-rounded booking is Yes. to have a worthwhile conversation and to kind of push the narrative and push the thinking of what is being said. Brendan, did you have a highlight or a low light to share with us? Well, Panels, again, are coming up. You know, panels, they're just uh, reemerging as a topic of discussion here on Polylog after basically disappearing for a year, year or more, more than a year. Year and a half, maybe. Yeah. We used to talk about them a lot. Yeah. So State of the Union had a panel today. They haven't had a panel in... Practically two years. Yeah. And it came back with not a ton of fanfare, although Danabash did say, look... It's here in studio. So exciting. But she didn't introduce who the hell was on the panel. Like, hello, can we have an introduction, please? Welcome back. So there are some critical deadlines coming up for President Biden and Democrats in Congress in the next few weeks. Five days to fully fund federal agencies, 17 days until the debt ceiling needs to be lifted, 32 days to pass President Biden's social safety net if the administration and Congress want to do it before the end of the year. And our panel is back in person to discuss all this. So she'll start with you. What are the stakes for President Biden, particularly as his politically speaking, as his poll numbers are not so great? So she, so she who? There's no introduction to this person, where they're from, who they speak for, how rounded the panel is. No, it's just we're just going to start talking as if we're just a random afternoon show on CNN. Like, no, that's not acceptable. You need to introduce who your panelists are. That is just a basic courtesy to the audience. So big thumbs down on that. And then I also wanted to bring up something that happened on the panel on Meet the Press. Chuck Todd, thankfully, helped the audience know who was even on the panel by introducing them. But he didn't do a super great job in introducing and providing even the smallest modicum of information about the topics they were discussing. Here's an example where he brings up the Ahmad Arbery verdict in the panel without mentioning what the verdict was. Welcome back. Panel is here. NBC News senior Washington correspondent Hallie Jackson, Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson, Jake Sherman, founder of Punchbowl News, and Daniel Pletka of the American Enterprise Institute. All right. Uh, actually, the big news pre-Thanksgiving was the Ahmad Arbery verdict. Um, I want to play the 911 call. 
because there's a line in there, Gene, uh, that other people have pointed out that that it might be the most important line of this trial. Let me play it. Why not just say what the verdict is? Why not provide a sentence reminding people who maybe didn't follow this because it was literally a holiday week? What, what's all this again? Help help us understand just the basic mechanics of what the story was here, because there've been a lot of cases in the news, right? Like. On Polylog, we don't cover cases like this that frequently. And yet the last few weeks, it's been case after case after case after case. And if you're not glued to the television, you might confuse one case versus another case versus another case. So just give people a sentence to remind them like what it is we're talking about. But he doesn't do that here, nor does he do that at the end of the show. Or I should say, at the end of the panel. Well, we're about to see. Waukesha is about to, I think, become the issue in every Wisconsin race at a minimum, if not nationally. James. Yeah, it's it's going to um, it, it's going to feed into this whole debate over cash bail, right. over um, uh, you know the fact that uh, again you look at every individual case and 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 in this anecdotal uh, in, instance, this guy was out on a thousand dollar. Bail for committing serious we, offenses. We, we can so, see the TV ads already being made. So, in fact, we saw them made in 1988. Exactly, but okay. you know, you can you yeah. can say that cash bail is used unfairly to yeah. keep people, in, and at the same time say that. But when somebody is a violent offender like yeah. this, you, you need, it needs to be more than a thousand bucks. So, Naomi, just based on that, are you familiar with what this is about? I'm actually not. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. This is the one. This is the guy from the parades. Yes. But no context for the viewer. Like a lot of people might know this as some terrible thing happened where somebody drove their car through a holiday parade and it happened to be in a town called Waukesha. But he says it's the Waukesha case. Previously, the cases were named after the person who was murdered, not the location. This is now is being sometimes named... problematic because then people act like it's the person who's on trial. Right. Like the George Floyd, George Floyd trial is not... He was never on trial. Right. He was murdered. Exactly. So there's a lot of confusion here with the naming of these things. So just to say the name and then to say this is going to be really important in Wisconsin. Well, this is a national program. Why why do we care about everything that's going to happen in Wisconsin? Then he expands and says it's about the whole country. But he doesn't explain what it is for people, reminding them that this is the case with the parade. And nor does he go into what this has to do with cash bail. Are you aware of that, Naomi? Yeah, the driver had been released after a I think it was like a somewhat violent crime. I think domestic violence. Um, he drove someone over with his car. Right. So it was another issue of hitting someone with a car and then got out on $1,000 of cash bail. So it's an outrageous piece. But if you just saw the basic headlines about this situation, you might not be familiar with how it developed. And then here's this whole exchange on the program where Chuck Todd is saying this could be a national issue of concern, but nowhere is it explained. So terrible context on Meet the Press and no interest in even introducing your panelists after they've been gone for a year and a half. That's just rude. On State of the Union. On State of the Union, yes. So we wanted to start our first segment looking at the new news, the depressing, I shouldn't say depressing, the new news about a new variant 
that is that we're still learning about. Yeah, new variant of the COVID virus. Right. There's only one virus that keeps changing right now. And it has an official name. It's Omicron. It was originally identified in South Africa. It's now in multiple places all over the world. I think it was on Friday the United States announced that they were going to have a ban from certain South certain countries in South Africa, not like the country, but just the region of South Africa. Southern Africa, I think. Southern it's Africa, exactly. Thank you. And there's a lot we don't know. It's it's a variant to be watching for. So, of course, this Yeah, the WHO called it a variant of concern. Right. Which the infectious disease experts that I follow say concerned should not have to equal panic, but panic is what they did on the Sunday shows. Yeah, yes. I'm going to be talking quite a bit about this topic. So, to start us off, let's begin with some of that potential panic right at the start of State of the Union with Dana Bash. Variant of concern. A troubling new COVID variant could already be in the U.S. Right now you're talking about sort of like a red flag that this might be an issue. Just when we thought things were getting better, how dangerous is the Omicron variant? I'll speak to NIH director Dr. Francis Collins next. So there's a lot of problems with just the few words that I played in that, how long was it? 18 second clip. First of all, she calls it a troubling new COVID variant could already be in the U.S. I mean, that is, it's like... The definition of speculation. Well, it's also like local news at 11, you know, a <laughs> right. troubling new development in your could already be in your neighborhood. Yep. Find out more at 11. that will kill you. Yes. Find out in two hours. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, give me a break. Because we don't know, right? Like, and the use of the word troubling, it is such, such a bullshit news word that is used in these cases where, like, they don't actually have evidence that it's, like, more deadly or more concerning than other things. Like, there's no evidence here yet. That's what this is all about. We don't know yet. All we know is that it could be bad. And so this use of the word troubling is just, like, such an out to get people like troubled we should be troubled about this and well it's like when it said like many people are affected it's like what many eight out of ten or eight out of six hundred right <laughs> many means or six hundred out of three hundred million right what what is many yeah exactly and i <laughs> Uh, it reminded me of troubling a, is such yes, a bullshit. Yes, uh-huh. uh, of a of a little bit by Ellen DeGeneres that she did literally twenty years ago. Here's here it is. I feel sorry for the newscasters. You know, we can turn it off, but that's their job, and they have to read these stories, and they're just coming up on the teleprompter. They don't know what's coming up, and they've got to go through this range of emotion that there were no survivors. And next, which candy bar helps you lose weight? Still to come is an asteroid headed towards Earth. But first, where to find the cheesiest pizza in town? Also, a disturbing new study finds that studies are disturbing. So there you go. Uh, So that's a problem. And then the other thing that bothers me is the use of questions at the beginning of your show that you actually aren't going to get answers for Oof. in your show. Oof. Right? Like, how dangerous is the Omicron variant? We don't even know. But She asks it as if 
stay tuned to find the answer. But we don't have the answer. We don't know. The answer is we don't know. Dana Bash knows that we don't know. If she knew, if we knew, we wouldn't be having State of the Union right now. We would be having a red flashing badge on the screen that said, breaking news. We now know how dangerous the Omicron variant is. We don't know. But you're asking questions that you don't have answers to. At the top of your show, during your promo. It's fine to As, ask it to experts. Right. That, that was about to say. It's different if it was in if it was in the interview itself. Right. But to do it in the promo suggests that that's something you'll be discussing. Suge- no, it suggests that you're going to have an answer. Right, right. That, that's what it is. It suggests that you're going to answer the question, that you, the show, will answer the question. But you're not answering the question. You're asking the question. It reminds me of, there's a term for it, and the term for this is Betridge's Law. Where you'll see like a headline on like Slate or some other website. And the question is, is the romantic comedy dead? Question mark. And it's like, oh, maybe it is dead. I haven't seen them in a while. And then you read the article and it's like, oh, no, that's right. Like Hallmark Channel has been making romantic comedies nonstop for the last like, you know, 20 years. And they're going to continue to do that. And also they're all over streaming networks. And no, it's not dead. They're like almost always when you have a headline with a question, the answer is no, no. You're just suggesting it, and the on, answer is on no. certain websites, but sure. Yes. Yeah, and I think th- the thing to keep in mind with this tone, this fear mongering by Dana Bash, is that it's completely not necessary. You can still explore the subject. You can ex- still explore this emerging breaking news without the panic. And it's not just on the Sunday shows that we've seen this. A lot of news networks are doing this right now. Uh, One that has been driving me crazy is the New York Times with their breaking news alerts about things that aren't news. Yes, this variant is news, but this here, I'm going to read to you one of these alerts that came in on Saturday morning. Quote, The UK has reported two confirmed cases of the Omicron variant, and they are said to be linked to travel in Southern Africa. Flash forward a day to this morning, Sunday, quote, at least 13 cases of the Omicron variant were found among passengers on two flights on Friday from South Africa to the Netherlands, end quote. Uh, Okay, fine. Like, we know there's a new variant. It's out there. Some people have it. Some people don't. It's growing at a certain rate. Do we need to know every time? Two more people get it? Is Are we going to have alerts every time two more people get this thing? It's a variant of our known virus. It's already been sequenced. They're working on it. Like, what is two more? Ca- that makes no sense. Like, it is not news. You're not telling me anything of news value right now. Except that it's out there and spreading. Well, yes, we know that. It's coming from Southern Africa. We know that. This is this is not a breaking news alert. This is a waste of everyone's time who looked at their phone and was like, oh, there's something happening. New York Times alerts coming through. What is this? No. What are you guys doing? So it's it's driving me crazy. Yeah, we focus on the Sunday news shows, but we have a whole host of other rants on news organizations more broadly. Yeah, but the Sunday news shows like Dana Bash are playing right into their into the hands of this. And they, they're, here's what their argument might be, these news organizations. They might say, well, look, the market went down 900 points on Friday. The markets are spooked. This is a serious issue. But it's like, no, the markets might be panicking, but you don't have to panic. You don't have to say 
every piece of information about this virus that has the word Omicron in it, therefore is breaking news. It's not. It simply isn't. And you're fueling further panic by doing that. I mean, I'm guessing this is what we're going to talk about. Like, the variant is news. That is true. And to focus our attention on what we don't know or what we do know or what what this might change in our vaccine distribution or what scientists are exploring or whatever. Like, there's a way to focus the coverage to be not just actionable as kind of like responsible public health citizens, but to understand what's happening in this moment rather than the case-by-case breakthrough or, or diagnoses, right? Like this is different than two years ago when you're like, oh, this cruise line or, you know, this cruise boat, cruise ship doesn't want to dock because there's probably, you know, 10 cases on. Like it's different than March and April 2020 when we knew nothing and it, it was news every time there was like, you know, a, a little outbreak in Seattle and then in New York right, or whatever. Right. Like this is two years later and... There's an active pandemic happening. The pandemic is still here. Like, yeah, I, I think the tone is what I find jarring and is not the tone in which you see public health officials talk about, even though they're very much on this trying to figure out what's happening. Yeah. And the thing about this tone and this fear mongering and this kind of like giant exclamation point is that it's not necessary. Like I said, you can focus on the variant itself and what we know and kind of what is actionable by asking experts. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It seems pretty basic to me. We saw this on Fox News Sunday when Trace Gallagher talked to Dr. Francis Collins. Dr. Collins, of course, is the director of the NIH. And I just thought the way he started the interview was seeking the exact kind of facts that I would be yearning for. What do we need to know about the Omicron variant? Is it more contagious? Will it lead to more severe disease? Yeah. We do know that this is a variant that has a lot of mutations, like 50 of them and more than 30 of those in the spike protein, which is the part of the virus that attaches to your human cells if you get infected. That is a new record in terms of the number of mutations. It does make you worry, therefore, that it's a sufficiently different virus that it might not respond as well to protection from the vaccines. But we don't know that. We can certainly see that in South Africa and a few neighboring countries in South part of Africa, this does seem to be spreading quite, quite rapidly. So mm -hmm. the, the inference would be there that it's particularly contagious. We don't know about its severity. Uh, trying to mm -hmm. collect that data as quickly as possible. And then Trace Gallagher had an amazing follow-up question, and Dr. Collins gave one of the best COVID answers I've heard literally in the last two years, trying to understand exactly what these variations meant. I'm interested when you talk about spike proteins, it tends to confuse people. When you say various mutations and spike proteins, specifically, sir, what do you mean by that? 
So remember the picture of this virus, that it has these uh, spikes on its surface, which are made up of protein. That's the part of the virus that has to find a receptor on your cell to get inside. So there's mm. sort of a lock and a key there. And this one is apparently uh, able to still do that. It's infecting people. But the shape of that protein is different because of these 30 plus mutations so that it looks a little different. So if you've raised antibodies against that from previously being infected or from being vaccinated, the question is, will those antibodies still stick to this version of the spike protein or will it evade that protection? We need to find that out. To be honest, though, that's going to take two or three weeks in both laboratory and field studies to figure out the answer. And that's what all of us as scientists want to know. That was an excellent explanation. Amazing. Like, so clear. And this locking key metaphor for the spike proteins... Why have I not heard it before on the Sunday shows? I mean, I'm a smidge outraged. It is so effective to understand why it's, you know, it's still the same virus, but the way it gets in our body or the way it is able to, you know, maneuver its way around antibodies is what we need to understand. Absolutely. Yeah, that that was just an excellent explanation. And, and I've always been impressed with Dr. Francis Collins on these shows. I actually think he generally does a better job than Fauci in explaining these things and explaining them in a way that the general public can understand. But even so, it's worth pressing to get some clarity the way that we saw Gallagher do here. And his explanation reminds me a lot of some other fantastic context that Face the Nation provided, of course, with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, right at the top of the program, explaining the three critical questions, as he put it, that we need answers to and kind of what those might be. The three critical questions right now is first, is this more virulent? So to your question, is this making people uh, more ill? Uh, there's no indication that it is. And in fact, there's some anecdotal information off of physicians in South Africa that this could be causing milder illness. Now, that could be an artifact of the fact that the initial cases seem to have been clustered in younger people, perhaps in outbreaks around the universities. The second critical question is, does this escape immunity? And this is the question that has people concerned, because when you look at the genetic sequence of this new variant, it has a lot of mutations that we know correlate with escape from immunity that's conferred by prior infection or by the vaccines. But then the third critical question is, does that escape from immunity increase its transmissibility? And there's an assumption right now that it does. We don't have a firm answer to that question. But even if its ability to escape the immunity that we've acquired from prior infection or vaccines does make it more transmissible in certain circumstances, the question here is going to be whether or not a fully boosted um, individual, someone who's had three doses of vaccine, has good protection against this variant. And right now, if you talk to people in vaccine circles, people who are working on the vaccine, they have a pretty good degree of confidence that a boosted vaccine, so three full doses of vaccine, is going to be fairly protective against this new variant. The other critical question we're going to need to answer is whether or not someone who has immunity from prior infection from Delta also has good protection against this new variant. So I like this, you know, breaking it down to the basic questions and then saying, here's the preliminary answers we see forming, why these things are of concern. And then, you know, later on, he goes even deeper into those. Gottlieb also got to an answer to a question that Dana Bash posed at the top of her program. If you remember, when we were talking about it, Dana Bash said, you know, it could already be here, this 
this virus. And Gottlieb, I thought, provided some good information related to that. Your viewers will hear Dr. Fauci later in the program say that America's surveillance system isn't where it should be. Um, how far behind are we? Is it here already? Well, it's almost definitely here already. Just looking at the number of cases coming off planes this weekend, um, it's almost a certainty that there have been cases that have gotten into the United States. We're in a much better place now than we were a year ago when B117 first arrived or even when Delta first arrived. We're sequencing about 100,000 uh, cases a, a week, which is very good. It's about 20 percent of all the diagnosed cases. CDC is also going to set up this week a new surveillance mm -hmm. system specifically for this variant. So I thought this was excellent insight, right? I mean, Gottlieb says this this isn't the early days of COVID where we had no idea what was in this country or what wasn't. But we do have excellent testing going on and genetic sequencing to know exactly what kind of variant is out there. But, of course, if people stepped into this country three days ago with it, we're not going to know yet because they haven't been tested yet. Later on, and I'm not going to have a clip for this, but Gottlieb suggests that it would be much more effective rather than closing borders that the variant has already made it through. We really, really need to be thinking about requiring people to have vaccines and potentially rapid tests before they get on airplanes to come into this country or to fly in general in this country. I would love to see a vaccine requirement for airfare. The other thing that in addition to it's most likely here as more and more countries announce that they're identifying the Omicron variant as flights are coming into the respective from respective different places is something that I remember a few months ago we heard on Face the Nation by Dr. Gottlieb that has really changed my thinking on variants where he says essentially the virus only has so many w ways to mutate. Right. And so just because it started mutating in one part of the world and then moved over to another doesn't mean it never would have gotten here unless someone from that part of the world came, right? That unless we're able to stop the virus from actually spreading, it's going to continue mutating. And there's no guarantee that even if nobody from South Africa ever came here for the next three years, right. if our vaccination rates continue to stay low enough, that the same mutations could happen here. Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, this this has been the case throughout human history. I mean, you look at things like even going back to the invention of agriculture, right? I mean, that happened in three different places in the world around the same time. And there there was not a connection there. They just, people discovered it at around the same time. Like this happens in almost all sorts of scientific discoveries. And it also happens in evolutionary contexts of viruses like this. And we have over 60 million people in America right now who are eligible for the vaccine, who have not gotten the vaccine. And there's a lot of virus still out there. More than two cases, more than 13 cases, as the New York Times uh, seems to focus on. The final thing I want to say about this particular virus is another note from Gottlieb that I think is really important to keep in the back of our head as some of these preliminary findings start to come out about this virus. 
that put into context what those findings might mean, because people are very likely to freak out. We're going to have studies out maybe by the end of this week, but certainly into next week, where what, what, indiv- what scientists are going to do is take the plasma from people who either had two doses of vaccine or had three doses of vaccine or were never vaccinated and just recovered from a Delta infection. Mm-hmm. And they're going to test that blood plasma against the virus to see if the antibodies in the blood neutralizes virus. Now, I would expect that those studies are going to show that the neutralization against this virus declines substantially. But that doesn't mean that the vaccines won't be effective. Remember, with the old South African variant, which also escaped the vaccines, we saw neutralization decline by two thirds in those studies. But when the vaccines actually were put into the population, the mRNA vaccines were almost equally effective against 1351 as they were against the Wuhan variant. So Mm -hmm. you could see a decline in neutralization. The vaccines will still be effective. So this is super important to one thing that he didn't mention right there in that clip, but I wish he did, was just the explanation of how that's possible. And that is that the vaccines work on many different levels, not just neutralizing the virus, but helping your body fight the virus once it gets inside your cells. So unrelated to the Omicron variant, there was a conversation about the virus and about our handling of covid on Face the Nation, where Margaret Brennan had kind of a look back, lessons learned sort of discussion with Dr. Anthony Fauci. And I thought this was critically important. We need to see more of this. It shouldn't just be in these special look back interviews. It should be in every interview with Anthony Fauci or any every interview that we have with people who were instrumental in the early days of our COVID-19 response, because the lessons we learn from those lookbacks can be applied immediately in situations like the one we're facing right now, where we have something new that's out there, that's spreading, we don't know enough about it, but we need to apply best practices to make sure we deal with it more effectively than we dealt with COVID in the early days. And Here's just one tiny clip of that discussion to give you a sense of the type of back and forth that we should be seeing far more often than we are. It was a deadly mistake by the CDC to try to use the flu as a model, according to Dr. Deborah Burks. It meant doctors were looking for spread in the wrong places and did not recognize the possibility of asymptomatic spread. The idea about not recognizing that it was spread in a very efficient way in an asymptomatic situation was really a problem because what it did, it did not allow a testing of the asymptomatic individuals. And the flu model being used, why was it used? The CDC would do that and that's the way they looked at respiratory diseases. And it took a while to figure out that this is really, really different from flu in many respects. When did you realize that? Well, Debbie Burks and I realized that right in the middle of 2020, it was very, very clear. If you go back on some of the, the statements I made at some of those White House press conference, we need to flood the system with testing, which means not just somebody who shows up with symptoms. We look back at statements and in February of 2020, very early on there, you were still saying it's certainly a possibility, but it's extraordinarily unlikely that COVID was spreading in the right. U.S. And that's because we didn't know it at the time. Why did you have that blind spot? Well, it wasn't a blind spot because we didn't know we weren't testing. That was the point. And influenza-like illnesses are not noticed unless you get an influenza-like symptom. The asymptomatic model that when you have a disease, 
in which you have 30 to 40% of the people who get infected have never, no symptoms. Then you say transmissibility. That was unprecedented in respiratory illness. So I guess you could say, well, you should have known that. The CDC should have known that, but they couldn't have known it from day one. But it should not have taken so long to figure out that in fact we have a substantial amount of transmission that's asymptomatic. It is actually eerie hearing this conversation and these words because it reminds me of a little anecdote that was relayed in the film 13 Days about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's the character of JFK in this film, which is a feature film, not a documentary, about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's an anecdote related to how the generals of World War I totally screwed up because they had the wrong model of what conflict was like and it led them into this horrible, horrible situation. I'm just going to play that because it is just eerily similar and it just struck me here on hearing this the second time from Dr. Fauci. You know, last summer I read a book, The, uh, the Guns of August. Mm. I wish every man on that blockade line read that book. It's World War I. It's 13 million killed. It's all because the militaries of both alliances believed they were so highly attuned to one another's movements and dispositions, they could predict one another's intentions. But all the theories were based on the last war. And the world and technology had changed and those lessons were no longer valid. But it was all they knew, so the orders went out. Couldn't be rescinded. And your man in the field, his family at home, they couldn't even tell you the reasons why their lives were being destroyed. But why couldn't they stop it? What could they have done? Here we are 50 years later. So it's just so important to learn these lessons from the missteps of the early days of COVID-19 so that we can get better at dealing with crises as they, as they stand today. And at one point, Margaret Brennan asks Fauci if he believes that there should be a 9-11 style commission to delve deeper into these issues. And he 100% endorses that. But he says, you know, I think the lack of doing that now is because you're focusing on getting this under control. But that's all the more reason to move forward and surface as many lessons as we can as soon as possible. So we're not making the same mistakes again and again. But Naomi, I think you had some lessons related to the economy. So I'll just share a couple of clips from an interview on Fox News Sunday that I thought was actually pretty worthwhile. I definitely recommend people spending the time to listen to the interview with Mohammed El Arian. He led PIMCO for years and is now the chief economic advisor to Allianz. We saw him a few weeks ago. Yeah, I remember that. Remember? I don't know if it was on Fox News Sunday. It might have been or maybe on Face the Nation. And I just thought it was a very interesting conversation about the economy, about inflation or inflation concerns specifically. And I just encourage people who maybe don't listen to Fox News or don't follow Fox News Sunday, maybe think everything is kind of, I don't know, slanted too conservatively. I just thought the whole conversation about the economy was... It was trying to explain things in a kind of a deeper way or even it just felt like a fuller conversation. There were definitely parts that were missing. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about kind of things that I thought were problematic. But 
take a listen to this first clip in which Trace Gallagher asks him about whether or not the Build Back Better plan is problematic or an issue in terms of injecting more money into the economy when inflation seems to be a concern. Senators back in tomorrow, the House back in Tuesday. They're talking about the social spending bill. Is this a time, in your estimation, Doctor, that that we should be injecting trillions of dollars into the economy, dealing with inflation? Trace, this is a controversial issue because it has both a good side and a bad side. The good side is that it helps on the labor market. The problem we have in the labor market is not that we have a loss of employment, is that we have too many people outside the labor market. They need to be attracted back in. And what the bill does, it tries to increase labor force participation. It helps on the supply side. The issue that people have is, yes, that's great, but what about the demand side? Mm-hmm. Are you really want to, you want to put more dollars into an economy that's already running hot? I think net-net, When you balance these two things, you want to go ahead because you really want to help the supply side and the Federal Reserve has to do more to compensate on the demand side. I think this is the first time that we've seen an interview where someone's not like, the Build Back Better plan is perfect. And then someone else is like, the Build Back Better plan is a disaster because that's always the angle in which people are selling or rejecting the Build Back Better proposal. Essentially, what we see here by El Arian is that that there's gonna there can be a lot of benefits, but there's a risk. There's a risk that it doesn't do enough or address the demand concerns that are that is really kind of affecting the economy right now. And so I just it was it was an interesting kind of like change in tone in, in talking about the Build Back Better plan yeah. that I found so so interesting. Now, El Arian seems very concerned about inflation. He recently had an op-ed in the Financial Times kind of disparaging the Fed and the choice for Jerome Powell to be nominated again. And essentially that, you know, the Fed needs to do more in terms of kind of slowing the economy down a bit. But, you know, he kind of goes on to talk about why inflation is not a hollow freak out. When you say not transitory and you cycle of inflation, I'm wondering how long you think that drags on. Is it permanent? I mean, when you give somebody a raise, it's not like you're going to take that raise back in a year. When you're selling a sandwich for 12 bucks now, it's not like you're going to sell that sandwich for 11.50 six months down the line. So when we see these these costs go up, how long before we might see some some pressure ease off of those inflationary um, gauges? So we will see all these second round effects you talked about. Um, people asking for higher wages in order to maintain their purchasing power. Companies raising prices in order to maintain their margins. And it will go on well into next year. And then it will ease, but ease for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. What I'm worried about is that it will ease because the Fed is going to have to hit the brakes. Trace, we haven't got a single historical experience in which the Fed has been late to the policy challenge and has not caused a recession. So rather than hit the brakes hard next year, it's much easier to ease your foot off the accelerator starting now. Wow, that's a powerful use of past examples there, saying that in the past when they were too late to an issue, they caused a recession. 
Exactly. Or it coincided with the recession, we should say. Oh, that's fair. That's so generous of you, Brendan. Yeah. And I, you know, there was, like I said, there was a lot that wasn't discussed here. It kind of doesn't acknowledge how the economy has impacted by certain people more than others. It hasn't talked about how, you know, what might be some of those causes for a lack of labor participation you know what are the things that are going to be needed to what he said attract people back to uh the labor force and some of those things are things like childcare and daycare and you know which i think he was he was noting right earlier right right but they didn't go in depth about it it was much more concerned right. about kind of industry being able to keep up with the demand there was also, and I didn't have time to include it today, really interesting conversations about how Black Friday seemed to be a little bit slower or it was busy, but not as kind of like insane as kind of American consumerism <laughs> usually warrants. And, you know, he says that essentially consumerism has picked up the last couple months as there have been so many concerns about supply chain issues that a lot of people have started shopping early. Hmm, that's an interesting point. Right. There was uh, the CEO of Amazon's consumer business on Face the Nation, and he said something also kind of interesting about how they saw, you know, a good amount of sales, you know, digitally, obviously, in a lot of sectors, although it was down in electronics, because people had already upgraded their home offices and invested in electronics during the pandemic. Oh, that's interesting as well. Yeah. So another example of like, people didn't need to buy things now because they'd already bought them. Right. So yeah, I think just sometimes Fox News Sunday has really interesting fiscal conversations or, you know, economic conversations that I think can be worthwhile for everyone. Yeah, I think overall, if you're interested in economic discussions, Fox News Sunday and Face the Nation are your strongest bets. Absolutely. Yep. All right, Naomi. Well, that's it for episode 250 of Polylog. If you've liked any of your episodes of The Last 250, we would so appreciate it. You could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and say why you follow our show or wherever you download and get our podcast. I don't know. Maybe you're on Spotify or Overcast or wherever it might be. I'm sure there's some star ranking system. We would love the love. Yeah. Well, there there isn't actually in a lot of those podcast apps, but... On the Apple Podcast app. Listen, you can definitely go read. find a place to rate us <laughs> if you want to and give us some love. Yes, yes. And meanwhile, we're going to be continuing the dialogue and we encourage you to make your dialogue count this week. Thanksgiving is over. Hanukkah has just started. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. Happy Hanukkah. And there are reasons to continue speaking about politics and all the issues. And this week, our challenge is to... Tap the brakes on the panic a little bit over Omicron. Let the Chirons, Chirons, someone someone corrected us once on our pronunciation of it. They probably will do so again. I'm saying it both ways, so I'm only wrong once. Yeah. I'm, I'm at least right once. Let the Chirons worry about Omicron. Oh my God. That's what I was trying to say. What a buildup. But in general, a variant of concern does not equal a variant of panic is the moral of the story. Exactly. And even the public health folks out there, all they were doing were reinforcing their recommendations, which are get boosted if you can, get Get your first vaccine if you haven't. Exactly. Well, 
if you have any thoughts about today's show about omicron the economy panels apparently we got more feelings about panels again you mostly can, negative <laughs> yeah. you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can tweet at me at soto naomi underscore you can tweet at me at beastitle and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast thanks everyone and we'll talk with you next week bye bye